Welcome to the Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. Today, we have a great guest on, Dean DeBias. He is the chairman of Reboot Partners and Revive. Dean, welcome to the program. Good to see you. Dean, what introduced us is an article that you wrote for Forbes magazine. Uh, the title of it was Health and Wellness Disruption Gets Personal. And it, it talks about the transformation of the delivery of care model. So I really liked uh, some of the points that you made. And so I, I thought, hey, the virtual shift is all about transformation. I want to bring you on. Before we get into the article and some of the points, interesting points that you make, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, sure. I uh, have a company called Reboot Partners, and we do a bunch of things. Um, one is to help large corporations some of the biggest in the world, uh, partner with startups all over the world. So we call that program Dancing with Startups. It's kind of fun. And uh, the other half of Reboot is helping emerging growth companies grow. So I'll either step in as a board member or chairman or just um, help them on the side. I used to do it in a CEO role. So they used to call me a serial CEO. So I've done about a dozen you know, Silicon Valley companies where I'll come in, reboot them, take them public, take them to an exit typically. And now I just kind of do it in more uh, advisory roles, um, do a lot of public speaking, got a pretty popular podcast called The Reboot Chronicles. We should probably collaborate on that someday and uh, teach at sure. uh, Kellogg Northwestern as well. Interesting. So health and wellness disruption gets personal. Tell us a little bit about it, but what, what motivated you to, uh, to write the article in and of itself? It was more of a personal thing. So I, I, I have a column in uh, Forbes where I just write about rebooting companies and industries. So it's not always about health, but I do lately been doing a lot of health, beauty and wellness uh, interviews on the Reboot Chronicles podcast. So this grew out of an interview I did with the CEO of a little company called Femtech Health, who is rolling up a variety of uh, health based uh, companies, everything from data to care to diagnostics to AI, all kinds of crazy things. And he is developing this company uh, um, only for uh, uh, female women's care. So I, I found it fascinating that Femtech is doing this. And then as I started researching all the other companies um, that are kind of nibbling away at the uh, healthcare space, you know, whether it's value-based or just niche or holistic or preventative, there are hundreds and hundreds of companies kind of coming through the the uh, startup ecosystem as as you know as as it is and. Um, so I, you know, published the podcast. I always put up an article on LinkedIn, got a ton of uh, feedback on it, like personal feedback, especially from women that were very fascinated by it. And so I thought, well, for, you know, occasionally I'll convert them into Forbes articles if I'm in the mood. So I thought, eh, let's convert this one. And the, the headline really switched from a profile about femtech to what the hell is going on in the industry right now. And specifically, what are the big dogs doing? So that was kind of like the headline. It's like and the big dogs in this case in healthcare. I'm calling the unusual suspect. So it's, uh, it's uh, I call it WACT, W-W-A-C-T. Um, so it's, you know, Walgreens, Walmart, Amazon, and CVS. The T is Target, but they're not really, as you know, since they've done their uh, relationship with CVS, it's, CVS is pretty much running those operations. And it was really about the transformation of primary care 
into retail. So that's kind of how I merged it all together. And so it's really an article about the big dogs versus the startups. So if you look at the the big dogs on one side, that's like, what are they going to do to transform or control or do the uh, dock in the box kind of healthcare? And then what are all the other little companies doing to either compete with that or quite frankly, be a part of that as a partner network? So some companies I bring up in that discussion are things like Better Health, Famtech, of course, is one. Biome is one from a diagnostics point of view. Revive is one from personalization. And another one called uh, Home Thrive, which is in-home care. And there's dozens of those. Everything from rural to older people, to, you know, you name it. You probably talked about a lot of those in the program. So that was only like last week. And I've just had received a ton of feedback about that, about the, people found it enlightening. But really, it was more about the diametrically opposed of, you know, who's going to win, the little guys or the big dogs? And I said, it doesn't matter in a world where we're dancing with startups, they're all going to either collaborate or continue their acquisition trail. So that's how the article opened up. But if you want, I can kind of touch on that because it was really about what specifically is CVS and Amazon and Walmart and Walgreens doing. And basically, these guys are spending billions of dollars and are about to spend billions more on this, um, you know, a bidding war, if you will, actually on the next generation of uh, primary care. And some of it's good, I think. Some of it's... Uh, from access do you point think of that view. Uh, the Walmarts and the CVSs of the world can transform healthcare, or is that they're just knocking off the uh, the small guy because they got a, a big brand and a huge presence? Well, that's the uh, that's the big question. I used to say sixty four thousand dollar question, but no one knows what that means anymore. You probably do. I, I remember. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's in some cases they can if they choose to. In other cases. I've always been, you know, rooting for the small guys because that's, you know, the, the companies I get involved in and, and invest in. It's all about how do they disrupt the disruptive disruptors. So if the big guys are trying to disrupt an industry, it's interesting to see, you know, whether they can do it quickly or not. So I think some of them will. Amazon might. Um, but if you look, let's look at some of the stats. So CVS, an incredible story, right? They bought Aetna for almost $70 billion. They bought Caremark and just recently... Uh, or most recently, I guess, is uh, Signify Health for about four. Right now, they're talking about buying them, and that's probably valued anywhere from $4 billion on up just on their market stats. So that's kind of a play into value-based versus just keep, get people to come into the clinics. So I found that interesting. You know, whereas Amazon, as you know, they bought PillPack and converted the name, of course, but their acquisition of One Medical, which was the highlight of the headline of the article, you know, for $4 billion, which is not a lot of money for Amazon, that's a fascinating move. Walmart, I think, probably has to step up their game a little bit. So they bought, you know, MeMD, but it was a tiny transaction before all this noise and and competition heated up under 10 million. But they they need to do what I call the build buy borrow exercise, probably a little better. So it's, this is what I teach at Kellogg's: like, should you build something yourself, clinics and stores? Should you buy it, acquire something big like One Medical, or should you borrow, which is partnering? So I think they should do all three of those because. They probably need to get to scale faster. You know, you're down here in Florida. They've done some, they've opened up some centers down here, and they probably could do that on their own without really buying something big. Whereas uh, Walgreens found that they should probably do deals with companies like uh, Corecentrix. That was about a $300 million deal. And then Village MD, I think so far, they put in $5 billion into that. So they are, these guys are spending a lot of money to make big bets on what is your question to get more people to come into stores for primary care because they're already there yeah but how do you actually take that to the next level i think the pandemic yeah, so the, so if i if i could the yeah, uh, sure. the the challenge there is 
it sounds to me like it's more storefronts. Storefronts, in-home, and virtual. So yes. there's a mixture so, of all three. So at the end of the day, I'm trying to figure out who is the player, who's the transformer that ultimately is going to help me get to a better state of wellness. You know, going into a minute clinic uh, because I have easy access to that doesn't seem to me like the transformer. But coming to my home or uh, monitoring me, uh, my audience here is many times the average Medicare patient, five chronic conditions, sees nine different doctors. The CMS indicates that they're only in front of their doctor 15 hours in a given year. The question is, if, what uh, happens the other 8,745 hours? That's really where change is made. Exactly. So, so a consumer, how do I engage the consumer in the idea of achieving better wellness? That said, uh, we we have some industry problems, and you know, CVS and, and Walgreens, right? 50% of all scripts written. Some have different numbers, but fifty percent of all scripts ever written are never filled. That means the patient isn't engaged. I go to the problem of getting diagnosed, going to the doctor, getting diagnosed, getting the meds, the therapy, prescribed therapy, but I, I but I ignore it. So the question is: Is the transformation of healthcare a brick and mortar issue, or is it a consumer a behavioral change issue? Exactly. And there's no easy answer to that because we're only in the first inning or the first quarter, depending on what game you like or period, if you like hockey, um, because the, the there's, there's just a lot of tight, you know, a lot of plates moving around. And one of them is what's the consumer demand? So I was about to say the pandemic did these guys, the storefronts a favor because they stayed open and everyone went there for everything. Right. So they're people are more used to now actually going to a Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, Target, um, not Amazon for healthcare related stuff. And there is, because they are so close to every zip code, it's just easy. It's really easy to, um, despite your comment about people not picking up the uh, prescriptions. I, I didn't know it was still that high. Um, so that's interesting. But so there's motivation from them. Why? I want more store traffic. I want more people in. They're going to buy more stuff from us. You know, there, there's all that built in. And we dispense the drugs. It's like something doctors can't do, right? So that's going on. Consumers are saying, Hey, I want what I want when I want it. And you guys have been talking about this value-based stuff for years. Um, how do I get some of that? So someone like you who might be a little bit more remote, it'd be nice to get somebody to swing by and actually do a visit for older people, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, you know, depending on the affordability, is they need more um, remote monitoring and diagnostics. And there are, that's why I brought up startups. There are dozens, let's just say, but literally hundreds, but dozens of really good companies that have the enabling technologies, the enabling, whether it's personalization or diagnostics or monitoring in your home, whether it's a remote EKG that's not extremely accurate, but it gives doctors some information. So what we're seeing a need for there is for tech companies, like the ones I mentioned in the article, to do a lot of not just the remote diagnostics, but actually a coaching and informing. So there is responsibility on the patient to constantly be updating whatever it is, in this case, an app or some type of a uh, portal. So the doctors or the network or the group can kind of keep tabs on them and actually read them, not something that goes into a file just because it's HIPAA compliant, but actually having a dialogue with someone on a weekly, monthly basis, depending on the condition. So that's one thing you've got. So you've got consumer demand, you've got tech enablement, and you've got you know the big dogs. We haven't even got into the final thing. Maybe we'll get it to the end. You know, we got the payers, providers, and the pharmaceuticals. 
um, not necessarily wanting all this to happen, by the way. So, so I mentioned Web3 in the article. That's like the democratization. I was going to go there. Yeah, yeah, the democratization and decentralization of the web, which basically says, hey, Dean wants to take control of his internet wallet. He wants to take control of his content. I don't want Amazon and Netflix and Apple and Google to control that. Well, guess what? Those big companies I just mentioned, they don't really want Web3 to come into play. And actually, yeah. there's a lot of consumers that don't care for it either. It's a lot of work. you got to do everything yourself. You can't call someone on a 1-800 number and say, hey, my password isn't working. So there is a level of trust in the system. Same thing in healthcare. So if you look at Web3 from a healthcare point of view, what, what's an example of that? Well, right now, um, you probably go to 15 portals from doctors that they say, oh, isn't this great? This is HIPAA. This is the new thing. It's like, no, you guys have it completely backwards. I, as the consumer, should go to one portal and you guys should communicate with me on my portal. It's just the opposite. So people are not not only picking up their prescriptions, people like me never go on those portals. I don't care what well, age exactly. you are. Well, it's, just, and that's, it's just not and that's, convenient. It's not consumer exactly. friendly at all. Yeah. And that's the challenge, right? Nine different doctors, as I used in my Medicare example, right? I'm not going to nine different portals. Who aren't, talking, who aren't talking to each other, right, front? Oh, who aren't talking to each other, right? So we're we're 12 years into this uh, transformation, if you will. I, I, I the clock begins in 2010 when we started to do around about that right, that time right. frame mm -hmm. when we started rolling out uh, EHRs and implementing HIEs, and we still aren't anywhere as close to having an assemblance of a national uh, health data network. So that to your yeah. point, whether I go to I used to I used to live in Jersey. So if I went to uh, New York for uh, great services or Pennsylvania or Jersey itself, right, nobody really knew about me. The only one that really knew about me and where interoperability is great mm -hmm. is when the claims get exchanged. Right. Claims can fly. Right. That the money, <laughs> the, you know, follow the money. The oh, claims no. interoperability uh, is not necessarily a problem. All right. It's the it's the medical data associated to it. The other one that does a really good job, other area where they do a really good job in interoperability is prescription drugs. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Sure Scripts does an excellent job in aggregating uh, scripts regardless of where they're filled uh, and uh, be able to present that into an EHR, uh, so a master list. So there are some good things going on from an interoperability perspective, but we are not nearly there. Uh, no, and, and the headline of the article to me was, exactly, but my headline was about personalization, but we're still in this phase, this early phase, the inning, whatever, where it's not personal. So because all this stuff is going on, I didn't even mention that big private equity groups or, or have been rolling up and buying doctors' practices and trying to make them more efficient, and that's making them less personal. And then it's interesting because you to go back to your question I didn't answer yet, which was you know who's gonna who's actually gonna transform this? Are any of these big dogs gonna transform it? Are they just gonna you know protect the you know their business model? Because this is at the end of the day, um, this is this is capitalism. So you can't just force this to happen. But if you're looking at you know. A lot of these, you know, big four or five companies actually rolling up doctors' offices and embedding them into a, 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 you know, location or using doctors to be part of the remote network, which is what you're saying. You know, there's a couple, there's a couple companies that have launched that just got some major funding in three months of time uh, for uh, remote uh, care because they realize, you know, all the people in the cities. Your example in New Jersey. They're fine. We can get somewhere pretty quickly. We can get to a doctor. We can get to a Walgreens. We can get to a CVS. 
So I, I think my, you know, uh, my my bets right now with with Amazon's big bet on uh, One Medical. So so medical and healthcare is a big bet for Amazon, but so is entertainment. So are about ten other industries. They're just going after everything, and people are concerned about that. You know, I've got Alexa in my house. I've got the I've got the uh, iRobot now, keeping an eye on what I'm doing. It's like too much data, too much information. Some people are going to disassociate with that a little bit, right? Where there's other people that really don't care. They're just going to say, hey, the one medical is totally separate. I'm not worried about data. Others are very location centric. They're used to getting in a car, walking down the street. So the idea of primary care to Walmart, Walgreens, or CVS, which is within, you know, 10 miles of every most consumers in the US, it's very attractive for primary care. And one of the things that concerns me is primary care annual visits have pretty much turned into hi, how you doing? How you feeling? Let's take some blood work and some vitals and you're out of there. There isn't a lot of personal touch anymore. So that to me is the bad news. You'll see more of that in clinics like this. It'll be like the nameless person that saw you, right? Versus Dr. John, who was always taking care of you in, in New Jersey. So couple that with the technology coming in. It's like, okay, so if that trend's gonna happen, then how do we use technology from the companies I mentioned? And there are dozens of others to actually make it more personal. So that was the point. It's a, it's this perfect um, landscape that has to come together. In other words, the big dogs now have to start working with a lot of little boys to create this next generation platform and services. So value-based turns into something that actually has more value and gives consumers more power in a web three sort of way, lets them own their own information, lets them see their own diagnostics. It's always a mystery. It's like I did some, lab work, I don't know, a few weeks ago, just unnecessary. The doctor thought I should do it. And I knew I was fine, right? But I still haven't seen it. The doctor got it, but I don't know where it is. Um, most people feel that way. We don't know where, where is our data. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a believer that we really need to redefine value. Uh, we have a definition of value-based right. care, but uh, so, you know, uh, we provide uh, remote patient monitoring and chronic care right. management, right? And to your point, it's really about the personalization. It's the engagement. Uh, it's, the, it's the fulfilling of what happens in, in that 8,745 hours. Patients respond when you engage. And, and quite frankly, sometimes they're just not, they're, they're not their own advocate. You know, some, a lot of people are lucky where they have advocates to help them and, and navigate their 84-year-old mother-in-law and or 82 year old mother into through the health system, but a lot of people aren't so fortunate. And the and so the point there being is, you know, if I'm able to monitor you and I'm able to engage you, it's because it's not just about monitoring. I I'll get you a blood pressure cuff and you know measure your pulse ox, right? It's that's good. We know that, but it's really about a combination of the monitoring and the programming you know, moving you along that continuum of awareness to wellness. You were just diagnosed with diabetes. How do I get to remission? Some people don't believe that diabetes can be put into remission. There's certainly mm -hmm. digital therapeutics uh, that disprove that uh, notion. But the point there being is that how do I move this patient? Uh, it's not because it's not just about drug therapy. Uh, I'll continue to take my drugs, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Or I'll put my uh, my my glucose pump on, and I'll just adjust it based on how much sugar I'm, eat, uh, I'm eating during the day. Right? That doesn't that doesn't help you. It helps you maybe short term, but 
uh, long term, it doesn't do anything. The, po- the point is that we're just uh, checking boxes, in my view. Um, uh, we really need to refocus on that patient, personalize it, and get the patient engaged and let them drive what it is they need and want versus a public entity, if you will, that's yeah. focused on profitability. So, so that's one side to it. That's kind of why I brought up Web3, because it's kind of a Web3 thing. So you're taking responsibility, you're taking ownership, you're you're selling your own content and your assets. In medical, it's not that. We're not selling anything, of course. Um, we're, we're taking care of our bodies and ourselves. And I think over time, you're going to see that. You're going to see a shift more to... I mean, if you look at things like, you know, the the payers and the providers and the pharmaceuticals, they're, again, like the big oligopolies out there. They they probably don't want all this to happen, but it's going to happen out of sheer force. It's just too big of a system. But as you see them shifting to cover more preventative and diagnostic treatments and, and self-care and alternative medicines and things that people actually could be doing to get themselves out of a healthcare hole, usually when they're younger and when you get too old, there's only so much you can do. Um, our system still isn't doing that. You've probably been talking about this on your, uh, you know, your radio show for years. It's like, it's not set up to do that. It's set up to take care of, you know, the big problems that you have. That's when the major funding comes in. But so I still see that being fought a little bit, but what consumers want is, is like, I want to basically be able to manage this without having to manage it that's another problem like if you can't go get your prescriptions so most of us again we're only talking american audience right now but it's different in europe right now um don't think about this until there's a problem and that 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 is true that has to change too so it's not all on you know and, and then and then we as a country have a capitalistic you know somewhat capitalistic and massive government involvement healthcare system and so it's not going to change anytime too soon. But companies like yours um, are probably, and the ones I mentioned, are going to be so, so important because they are developing the next generation of enabling platforms and technologies that make it easier and actually can bring down the cost of healthcare. The most funniest words anyone ever says, bring down the cost of healthcare, because it never happens. But it will in the future <laughs> if you let this democratization happen, and you let companies like yours actually you know, you'll probably be a hundred times bigger than you are now because a couple of new technologies came along that allowed people to do more without having a doctor to come out and visit them or drive out or go into a clinic or even have a virtual thing. It's like there's so much that there's so much information that can be given to a healthcare professional that before they even call you, they literally know what's going on inside your body. Not to mention, you know, you want your loved ones to know at certain ages what what's going on with pops, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, when you're in the 50, 55 and older crowd, you start to develop. Are you talking those. about yourself there? What are you doing? I am talking about myself, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Let me be transparent. Me I have too. a disclosure to make. Yeah, me too. So the point, the, no. the point there being is, is that we've already beat up our bodies uh, mm. and now we're developing these chronic conditions. But it's too late in the game, if you will, to some degree. Right. There's yeah. still a path of uh, towards wellness uh, or a better lifestyle. But at the end of the day, wellness is, takes place on day one. And we, we need to shift that mindset uh, to that to that model. Obviously, a, a child can't do that. For, but the overall system needs to focus on wellness versus I'm only going to call the doctor when I got pain and uh, I need to get it fixed. Back to the beginning, right? Talk about the the big four, the big dogs. I was talking about those big four. 
in their inventory, especially Amazon, Walmart, have every product in the world you could ever want to manage that wellness, increase your blood flow, exercise, go out and see the world, bicycles, you name it, just anything can be a prescriptive from a condition. And that's yeah. different than a healthcare system. That's why these billion dollar bets are so important for them because they want well, to be able to talk to you and then sell you something. Yeah, and the and the uh, question that I've been asking a lot lately is, you know, we we can claim and, and fix the problem of access to care, mm-hmm. but uh, does uh, does everybody have access to a cure? Meaning, do I have the finances to buy that bike? Do I have the finances to eat, uh, not eat at McDonald's every day, uh, mm-hmm. and and just to do better, just on the diet and exercise front? I don't yep. need to go to a gym to exercise. Nope. I can put it. I can get a decent pair of sneakers at at Walmart. I take some steps uh, every yep. day. But but the point is that does everyone have access to a cure versus access to care? And that's the I'm not. I didn't get my scripts filled. I didn't do my diet. I didn't do my exercise. Uh, but I'm gonna see my doctor in six months. I'll I'll worry about it then. Yeah, he'll yell at me for a couple minutes and then I'll be out of there. It's all situational, depending on the geography you're in and the demographic and whether you're, you know, I mean, the the the, the uh, at-home doctor visits are back. You know, everyone thought doctor calls were out in the Dr. 50s, Dr. Welby, right? MD. Yep. Dr. Welby, exactly. So the prescriptive actually just could be, hey, this is the kind of food you should eat. It doesn't have to be an expensive workout equipment or a gym thing. I was just a, an example, but it could be anything from a pair of shoes, get yourself moving to quick finger, just eating the right food and supplements and, as you know, medication. We have a minute left. What should the audience look for in the next six to 12 months relative to transformational activities that says, hey, we're finally on the path to something big? Well, personally, I would just always talk to your primary care doctor, not for what you think I'm going to say, but to ask him if he's staying in business, because many of them are thinking of selling out because it's just too much or becoming part of a network to handle all the billing and all that nonsense. So that's a personal thing. Just know who you're dealing with. Second one is just, you know, if you're if you're in an area, get to know your CVS and Walmart and, and Walgreens and just kind of see if you ever would want to go in there, because if you're going there anyway, it's it's uh, it's an interesting thing uh, to think about. And the third one really is the whole preventative personalization, taking care of yourself, but actually figuring out what are the personalization tools I can use to prescribe things to me that aren't drugs yet, but that can actually help me and improve my lifestyle or get me to where I want to go. It's like, you got to have to take, don't wait. You got to take charge and do it yourself. I'm with you. At the end of the day, personalization is uh, starts with the person. And the more that they're empowered to take control, I think that is really what's going to drive the transformation. I want to thank you for your time. Great insights. Uh, great article. Again, uh, it was a Forbes uh, article printed on August 19th. It was entitled Health and Wellness uh, Disruption Gets Personal. I encourage everyone to check out that article. Dean, thanks again. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You're welcome, Tom. Good to see you. I want to thank the show sponsors. HP, HP Engage Long Life Cycle Products provides the stability, safety, and security you need, plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow. As well, GenieMD providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. 
If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at Foley Tom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next shift.